0: Hi, I'm Esau Kwonga. And I'm Ryan Hunt. And we co-host Stadio, a football podcast, on the Ringer Podcast Network. If you like soccer or football, make sure you search for Stadio,
1: a football podcast, on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available, and listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in D.C. and president select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on Cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth, plus view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can scare an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on
1: cars.com.
0: Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. We're going to chat with Zach Cox from Nesson in just a little bit. We'll get into the Patriots as the off season is underway. Will they add a weapon for Mac Jones? Are they actually going to land Bill O'Brien? Plus we'll get into Everything that transpired with Tom Brady and that poor performance in probably his last game as a Tampa Bay Buccaneer. But I do want to start with the Celtics and in particular with Jason Tatum. So Monday, I felt, was just a jaw-dropping performance from Tatum. Now, he's had higher scoring games. Of course, you can reference the game against the Spurs a couple of years ago where he goes for 60. He did that, though, on 37 shots. He's had more important performances for sure. The most important performance of Jason Tatum's career came last year against Giannis Antetokounmpo and the Bucks. Game six, down three games to two, Tatum goes into Giannis's house. He outplays him. He goes for forty-six. If you lose that game, it's not a great look for Tatum, right? Considering the fact that the Bucs did not have Middleton for that entire series. The Celtics were favorites going in. Tatum had to win that game. And that sort of proved he had that dog in him, right? Outplaying Giannis in his house, on the road. That was a huge moment for Tatum in terms of just the perception of him here locally. You lose that series, it's really bad for Tatum. So he's had those important games. He's had the larger scoring games, if you will. But that game Monday was the best I've ever seen Tatum play. And I don't want to sound completely hyperbolic here. But that game was just so easy for him. He got hot in the Spurs game a couple of years ago. This was a guy on Monday that just showed us he has mastered his craft. So it was just easy for him. You look at the final tally. He goes 15 of 23. That's 65.2%. He's 7 of 12 from deep. That's 58.3%. 51 points. 51 points for Jason Tatum against the Charlotte Hornets on Monday. So I just want to go through this, why I think this is his best performance, and outline some of the things he did. So I'll start in the first quarter, of course. Why would I start in the fourth quarter, right? Anyway, first quarter, he comes off a screen at the left wing, quick in and out dribble. And he just goes right past Plumley because he sees, OK, I'm getting here. Plumley's coming up on me defensively. I'm not going to settle for a jump shot. I'm going right past him. I'm getting to the bucket. That's recognizing what the defense is. OK, after that, he catches the ball in the corner and the guy on him, because it, it's sort of semi transition, catches the ball in the corner it's Dennis Smith Jr. on him, who is small, diminutive in stature compared to Jason Tatum. So he knows, okay, I'm bigger than this guy. I'm going to get to my spot. And all he does is hit an easy fadeaway over him. But the decision was quick, right? It's not like he caught the ball and he's trying to figure out what he's going to do. No, he knows he has the smaller defender on him. He knows he can easily just turn around and shoot over him. That's exactly what he does. Recognizing who the matchup is. Okay, later on, catches the ball in the right wing on McDaniels. Okay, doesn't have an advantage yet, right? He catches the ball. McDaniels is on him. But he makes an advantage. He just goes right by McDaniels, drives left, and dunks. Quick decision, right? Where he recognizes, okay, I can tell where this guy's defending me. I'm just going right to my left. I'm not waiting for a screen anything like that. I'm just going right to the basket, recognizing I can just fly by this defender right now. Okay. End of the first quarter, he's doubled. Okay. So he dribbles left. Okay. He's doubled at the top of the key. He dribbles to his left. Malcolm Brogdon is in the corner he throws a pass with his left hand okay he's a righty people he throws a ball with his left hand one-handed like a baseball pass to Malcolm Brogdon in the corner and like um, you're watching that game and it feels like it's a simple pass it's not it's a fucking hard pass to make one-handed with your offhand hit Malcolm Brogdon in the shooting pocket he hits a three to end the quarter I mean that is a ridiculous pass that Tata made okay second quarter he passes the ball to Rob at the free throw line or I should say this that's not how it happened Rob was past the ball at the free throw line, okay? From the top of the key, they passed the ball to Rob at the free throw line. Tatum is on the left wing, okay? So he sees Rob catches the ball and Rob's a really good passer for a big man, right? So right away when Tatum sees Rob catch that ball, he recognizes Oh, the big man is on Rob. Okay, so what that means, when Rob catches the ball at the free throw line, with the big man on Rob, it means there's no protection at the rim. So Tatum is at the left wing. He sprints to the basket. Rob recognizes it, throws it to Tatum. He gets an easy dunk. That is just recognizing what's going on from a basketball perspective, knowing everything on the floor. Just the presence of mind to realize, oh, I'm going to get an easy dunk if I just sprint. All I have to do is sprint. Rob's going to find me. I'm going to get a dunk because his defender is up on him right now. So that was just... The recognition from Tatum is what stuck out to me. And then you go to this. So he gets a screen from Rob. They blitz Tatum. Tatum makes a bounce pass between two defenders. Then Rob hits White for a wide open jump shot. That's reading the game, right? He knows, okay, I'm not going to get the assist here. But since the double's coming to me, when Rob catches the ball, that means the help has to come from the other side, which means I'm going to have an open shooter, which is going to be Derek White. He hits a wide open three. All right. Then he gets a screen from Smart quickly sees the double coming okay so he sees the doubles coming when smart's bringing up the defender so what he does is he splits the double he gets downhill and he almost loses balance for a second he throws up because he knows he's on the other side right he knows rob's in the dunker spot right so he throws the ball up with his left hand again lefty throws up a lob to rob rob flushes it down again realizing okay if i go real quickly here i'm going to be able to split the double before the screen comes over i can split this i can get downhill and rob i'm going to put his decision i'm going to put his defender in a bind because he's either going to have to help on me or he's going to stick with rob so either i'm getting a layup or rob's getting a lob and in this case rob gets the lob okay then he has the ball at the left wing he shot fakes his defender gets him in the air okay then he finds rob so he throws the ball to rob after he gets his defender in the air because the defender is recovering and tatum doesn't have his dribble left so he throws the ball to rob so what he does after that is what Steph curry does he follows his pass. He chases Rob, like goes, runs, sprints to Rob, gets the ball, knocks down a jumper. That is just next level stuff that quite frankly, we've seen this sort of developing with Tatum, but these are just all plays that tell you how much he realizes or how much he's mastered the game. Okay. So then he runs up to a screen that smart has the ball. He's running up as the screener, right? And what he does, instead of going up to Smart, he fades to the right and gets an open three, right? So that's recognition. He knows, okay, the defense is planning for me to come up. They think I'm going to set the screen because Tatum's a really good screener. He does a really good job when he gets those mismatches. So what he sees is, okay, if I go up there, I can fake like I'm in a screen. I can pop out. He gets a wide open three. All right. 103-101. gets a screen from Smart. So quickly, they have to switch LaMelo Ball onto him. And he wants to go at LaMelo Ball, right? LaMelo Ball is not a great defender. So then McDaniels tries to get LaMelo ball off him because they know that LaMelo ball is toast. So what happens then is McDaniels tries to recover. And as he's trying to recover, Tatum just goes. He sees the switch coming back. He just goes to the basket. And this is an impressive finish, right? He goes to his left hand and then he fi- finishes in the lane with his right, where he's just sort of elevating and he's hanging in the air and he finishes to put the Celtics up 105, 101, a huge basket in the game, right? All right. Then later on, he gets the switch on Dennis Smith and he just easy step back on Dennis Smith because he knows he can create the separation he needs with the length and athleticism. All right, then Smart screens off the ball. So ordinarily, when you get a screen off the ball, what's happening here is he's going he's gonna to come off the screen from Smart, he's going to get the pass from the other wing, and he's going to get downhill. But instead of doing this, again, he recognizes what he can do. So he runs off the screen, but then he flares, and he gets a wide open three. So ordinarily, the defense is planning, oh, he's kind of come across the other way. No, Tatum stops, fades back, gets a three and knocks it down. Okay, And then for the 50, just disposes of McDaniels. He's going to his left hand, kind of gives him a little shove with the right hand and hits a step back three to give him the 51 points. Just a remarkable day for Tatum in terms of that was like some basketball genius shit that we saw from Tatum yesterday. If you watch that game in detail, you could see all the stuff he was doing just tells you how far he's come along as a player. He's moving off the ball like a certified great shooter, like a Ray Allen, Steph Curry type, right? Not to say that he shoots the ball like those guys, but he's moving off the ball like those guys. He's reading the game kind of like Steph Curry does. His off-ball movement, he's actually now turned this into a certified weapon, which that wasn't even the case going back to last year. That's why I said this is the best game I've seen him play. Like all the stuff he did from... Thinking the game out. He was thinking everything that was happening, right? He knew exactly what he was going to do. He had a plan for everything. And you can just tell this guy is on a different level than everybody else. It's how he did it. He's always had the physical ability. He's one of the most gifted scorers we've ever seen in terms of in a Celtics uniform. He's incredibly gifted when it comes to that. But now he's starting to master the game. He's seeing everything happen before it happens. And that's the special part. That's when you know he's getting to that next level, right? He already took a leap, but he's getting to the other level. And on top of that, he gets to the free throw line 14 times in this game, which I absolutely love because I talk about mastering the game mentally and reading the game. This is the physicality standpoint, right? The 14 trips to the line symbolize overpowering your defender and saying, hey, you can't handle me right now. I want to get to a spot. You're not stopping me from getting there. So he's now up to 8.6 free throw attempts per game. That's sixth in the NBA. Last year, he's at 6.2. That was 15th. I've been asking for seven this year. He's at 8.6, which is better than I even thought he would get to. So we know he's an elite defender. We know he's mastered both the physical element and now the mental element on the offensive end. So let me go metric man for a second here with Tatum. So Tatum, because of his off-ball gravity... His command with the ball, and because of his physicality getting to the cup, he drives elite offense. So just think about this. So Tatum on the floor this year, the Celtics have a 121.8 offensive rating, which is through the roof good. Tatum off the floor, 111.1 offensive rating. So the Celtics, by the way, they lead the league at 117.8. So that's four points better than the league's best offense with Tatum on the floor, the Celtics offense, right? And the 10th best offense with him off the floor. So you're talking about a 10.7 points per possession difference in terms of 10.7 points over 100 possessions better with Tatum on than off from an offensive perspective. That's a wider gap than Kevin Durant. Kevin Durant's at 118.7. The Nets are with him on the court. 110.7 with him off the court. Eight points, right? So Tatum's got a wider gap. Curry's on-off gap in terms of the offense, 9.5. Tatum's gap is bigger than Curry's this season. The gap, actually, if you think about it, it should be wider with those guys because when Tatum is off the floor, his teammates are better than the teammates that those guys are playing with. So the gap should actually be wider for them. But the impact gap has been tremendous over the past few years for Tatum. But it just tells you that the eye test, what we're seeing is matched by the numbers. His impact numbers are off the charts in terms of the on-off. So that brings me to something else with Tatum. He has an opportunity to have something that we haven't seen an athlete have in this town since Tom Brady. And I was actually having this conversation with Bill a couple of months ago about, like, whose city it is right now. But this was Tom Brady's city for 20 years. Now, there were other massive stars here, but Brady always came back to being number one. Like, during the Brady era, you had Pierce, you had Garnett, you had Pedro, you had Schilling, Right. You had Ortiz with the Sox, of course, as well. Now, Ortiz was the closest to Brady because of how long he played here and the moments he had, right? You think about the walk-off home run against the Angels in 4 the walk-off home run in Game 4 against the Yankees to save the season, and then he had the walk-off single in Game 5 in that epic comeback. That was in, what, the 14th inning. And then you had the Grand Slam going all the way to 2013, so from 4 to 13 he had the game two he had. I still don't know why they gave him anything to hit Joaquin Benoit. He hits the Grand Slam the same day that actually Brady had that touchdown to Tompkins against the Saints, one of the great Boston sports days. But anyway, getting back to my original point, and then if you had lost that game, you're not going to the World Series, right? I mean, you're not beating that Tigers team. They, that would have given the Tigers a 2 nothing series lead. And remember, that Tigers team had Scherzer. They had Verlander. They were loaded. And you won that series because of Ortiz. And in the World Series, 11 of 16 the two bombs. He had 688. He had a 760 on base percentage. So I think about that. The guy was on base 76% of the time in the World Series. Slugged 1188, 1948 OPS. But what happened right after that 13 World Series, right? So that was a great moment. That was like as high as anybody could get since Brady. But think about what happened after the 13 World Series. Now, eventually Ortiz would retire in 16. Great final season, by the way. The Patriots went in 14, 16, and 18. So Brady gets the crown back as like the king of Boston, right? So even if Ortiz was temporarily the man, Brady took that right back. So guys had their moments, right? Like Tim Thomas in the cup run, Ortiz, multiple moments. We mentioned Pearson Garnett win the championship. But Brady was always the overriding guy and always took back the crown as the man in town. Now, it felt like next up was Mookie. So Mookie wins the MVP in 2018. The Red Sox win the World Series in 2018. He hits 346. OK, so he already had the title under his belt, like very early in his career, but he's gone. <laughs> we all know what Heimbloom did. He traded him. So he's out of contention. So if you look at the sports scene right now and sort of how it's set up, Tatum has the ability to take over that sole spot as the athlete in the city. Now, this is contingent on finishing the job this year and winning the NBA championship, as we all know. And his team is the favorite because of the way that Tatum is playing, right? Like it's great. The Celtics are loaded. They're the favorites because they have Tatum. He's the head of the snake here, right? And if he has a series like he did in the finals a year ago, well, okay, that's gonna hurt the case. This is gonna sound like a ridiculous. If you go back and listen to this podcast, if he loses in a bad series in the Eastern Conference, it's gonna sound ridiculous. But I'm laying out what could be if he does get over the hump, if he does win a championship this year. Now, no one is ever gonna get to Brady level. Never. It's not gonna happen. But this is the athlete that I believe he has the chance where we all say, okay, this is our guy, this is the guy, homegrown player, absolute stud. He's taking steps every year. First team All-NBA last year, gets to the finals. Could this be the year that he gets over the hump? Think about it like the other guys that would be in contention. Devers, he just got his 331 million. But what is his Sox team doing right now? I mean, we have no fucking clue what Bloom's doing, right? They look like the fourth best team in the division right now. We can be optimistic about the future and say yeah, they got some good prospects, the Myers, the Cassises of the world, right? But that's a lot of projecting. The Brian Bayos, Mac Jones had a bad sophomore season, no way around it. With the Bees, yeah, they're ridiculous and the 6 nothing win on a Monday, another dominating performance by the way. But let's just say the hypothetical is the Bruins win the cup. Okay. Pasta's is their best player, he's 26 years old. They still have to get him extended and all that. But you have Bergeron who's a first ballot Hall of Famer and he would be winning a cup For the first time since he did it the first time, which is 11 years ago, Marshawn gets another cup, right? So you have all these other guys like pasta is clearly the best player, but you have all these other guys that are going to get a lot more credit than say like Tatum's teammates are like Tatum is going to be the guy if the Celtics win. And even if say like the bees right now, they're better in their league than the Celtics are in their league. Now they're both in first. This isn't like a massive like competition either way. It's just the Bruins have been more dominant. But if you think about it from a Celtics perspective compared to the Bruins, the Celtics have this massive window now, right? It's just easier to see the Seas going on like a five-year run where they have multiple finals appearances compared to the Bruins just because of the age of the players. So it's very rare to have this opportunity to grab hold to the city and make it yours. Tatum, out of all these young athletes, guys entering their prime, he has the best chance to do it. And another thing I would add to Tatum is, so these games with Jalen out really help his MVP case. So the team is now 3-0 and without Jalen since he went down. And I get two are against the Hornets, right? I mean, one of the worst teams in the league. But even with just the 20-point performance against the Nets, 33 points and 51 points. So without Jalen the past three games, he's at 34.7, 9.7 rebounds and 5.3 assists. And you look at what awaits ahead from a narrative perspective. You have the Warriors on Thursday night, and we all know the last time they played that Saturday night primetime game, Tatum was bad. 18 points on 21 shots, 28.6% from the field. And this was after a bad finals against that same team a year ago. So this was supposed to be the statement game for Tatum. And the one thing I think Tatum has to be aware of is, and I mentioned earlier that he sort of mastered his craft, right? But the Warriors, what they do and how they defend Tatum, if you watch closely on Thursday night... They do something different than most other teams. So what most other teams do, and we saw this with the Hornets, is they blitz Tatum. They try to get the ball out of Tatum's hands. What the Warriors do is different. They don't bring the help until Tatum gets into the lane. And that's where the turnovers came from Tatum in the finals. It's when he's going downhill towards his right or going downhill towards his left, and they bring the late help. So that's the one thing that Tatum really, not to get too into the nitty gritty of this game on Thursday night, into the details of a regular season game. But that's the one thing that he really has to be aware of. And I expect that he's going to have this on his mind. Now it's what? We've seen that game plan from the Warriors for seven games. And they're going to be better than it than most teams because they game plan for Tatum for an NBA finals. Their whole game plan was how do we stop Jason Tatum? He's the best player on their team. So this is what they came up with. And it works. So most other teams are not going to do this during the regular season. The Warriors will do this. On Thursday night to Jason Tatum. So it's going to be, hey, does he recognize when the late help is coming, so to speak? But anyway, circling back to that MVP discussion, he sits right now, according to FanDuel, fourth at plus 600. He's behind Jokic, Luka, and Giannis. I don't know why he's behind Giannis, by the way. But anyway, you have to take advantage of this type of game if you're Tatum on Thursday. You're coming off the 51. So you're going to be the talk of this game heading into it on Thursday night. You don't have your running mate right now in Jalen Brown, and this is a TNT game, so it's a national TV game, no NFL on Thursday night anymore. This is a game that's going to have eyeballs, and I don't want to sound dramatic, but this can really, really help Jason Tatum's MVP case because he's already building up the momentum, the 33, the 51, and then if he beats the Warriors, the team that beat him in the finals, without Jalen Brown, I mean, that would be massive for Jason Tatum in terms of this MVP case as the Celtics right now. Are on a seven-game winning streak. So I cannot wait. And I, I really, that was a ton of fun watching Tatum on Monday. I mean, that was basketball genius level stuff. I'm not saying he's a basketball genius. I'm not saying he's in the Larry Bird or LeBron James category. I'm just saying what we saw on Monday was basketball genius type stuff. All right, a lot more to get into. Coming up next, we're going to chat with Zach Cox of Nesson. We'll get into the Patriots, their offseason. Bill O'Brien hit on some Tom Brady as well. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Joining us now, he covers the Patriots for Nesson, Zach Cox. Zach, thanks so much for taking some time, man. We really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me.
0: All right. So you get this unprecedented statement from the Patriots last week. Hey, we're working on a contract negotiation. We're trying to get a deal done with Gerard Mayo. We're going to interview offensive coordinators. I mean, you've covered this team for a while. How shocking was it to get
1: that statement? Yeah, it was really unprecedented. Uh, This is Something that I personally have never seen from covering the Patriots for seven years now and and following them for about 25 before that. Uh, This is just not the way that they have ever operated. Uh, And this wasn't even the most surprising part of it was this wasn't even them announcing that something had happened. This was them announcing that they were attempting to make something happen, which (laughs) And this is a team that doesn't even like to announce when things are happening uh, unless they're basically forced to do so. So for the fact the fact that they came out and said, "Yes, we are going to be hiring a new offensive coordinator and actually using that term offensive coordinator, and saying we are working toward an extension for Gerard Mayo, uh, working toward implying that there was at least a chance that that would not end up happening, it was, it, yeah, unprecedented is the word that I keep coming back to. It's just goes so far uh, against everything that that this team typically has done in the past uh that to me suggests that there was some robert Kraft influence in this uh, i don't know if it was necessarily Kraft saying bill you need to do this we are putting out this statement it, it could have been a little bit more collaborative than that uh, but i can't imagine that this is something belichick just kind of volunteered to do uh, on his own volition
0: Well, yeah, and I was talking about this the other day. The thing that I found interested about the Kraft perspective is, remember Kraft, like last year at the owner's meeting, was essentially saying that, hey, Bill's done things unconventionally when he was asked about the weird situation in terms of the coaching staff and the offensive coordinator position. So I have to imagine, to your point, that Kraft did step in and say, hey, Bill, you know what? I gave you a year, and we tried it with your guys. We tried it with Matt Patricia and company. It didn't work. So, hey, this time we're getting a real professional offensive coordinator And it brings me to this, Zach, before we get into the Bill O'Brien of it all, is with the Matt Patricia thing, like, everybody didn't think that was going to work, right? It feels like the only person that thought that was going to work was Bill Belichick and maybe Robert Kraft trusted the fact that Bill could make it work. But I still am wondering, why do you think Bill thought that would work? Like, because remember last year, he compared Josh to Nick Saban, like the relationship they had. So I just Mm -hmm. wonder, like, How did he actually think this is going to work? Like it didn't make any sense for like a
1: smart guy, the greatest coach of all time. How could you possibly think it would happen that way? It's baffling. Yeah, it's exactly how you explained it. This is something that everybody at the time said, I don't think this is going to work. Why are you putting a a defensive guy in charge of your offense uh, and a special teams guy in charge of the development of your most important player when neither of those coaches had ever uh, or had any prior experience in either of those roles uh, and it ended up obviously being a disaster with the Patriots offense turning out to be one of the worst in the NFL uh, the big thing that I uh, that stuck out to me was the fact that they just they brought back essentially the entire offense from last season uh, a couple small tweaks Shaq Mason uh, Devontae Parker coming in uh, So, so some minor changes but this was essentially the same group as last season, uh, as the one that that they ran in 2021. And even though though that group had its flaws, they were basically a top 10 offense or a borderline top 10 offense by most metrics. Uh, And you look at the way they performed this year, they were 24th, 25th, 26th, 27th, or worse in basically every statistical category. Uh, And if you look across the board, basically with the exception of Ramondre Stevenson, almost every single player on their offense regressed. And that's the really only the the only real explanation for that uh, is poor coaching and and yeah it's a little surprising that Bill Belichick for as smart as he is and he's obviously one of the smartest coaches in in NFL history if not the smartest the fact that he actually thought that this had a chance of working uh, is a little crazy honestly Um, I guess he just maybe overestimated the, uh, the the coaching ability of Matt Patricia and Joe Judge and And I don't think either of them are necessarily bad football coaches. They were just put in roles that they didn't have any experience in and and weren't able to pick up quickly enough. Uh, And the fact with Patricia, too, uh, I think it's the offensive line aspect of it has been kind of underplayed. Uh, The fact that Matt Patricia was the only assistant in the NFL this season that was both calling plays and coaching full-time a position group and it wasn't even the quarterbacks. You've seen a guy, uh, you've seen coaches be offensive play callers and quarterbacks coaches at the same time. This guy was trying to call plays and coach the offensive line, uh, which are two widely different uh, skill sets and trying to do both at the same time, one of which he had never done before and the other of which he hadn't done in about 15 years since he did it uh, <laughs> under Dante Scarnecki in 2005. So when you lay it all out like that, it seems crazy. The fact that Bill Belichick actually thought this was going to work. Uh, and now with these statements and with these reports coming out, it is pretty clear that he knows that he miscalculated and has to do something differently next season.
0: Yeah, that's crazy to me. So you look at it, you're like, well, hey, Matt, you're going to call the plays. You've never done that before. But on top of that, we need you to coach the offensive line as well. It just seems like... Nobody believes in Matt Patricia as much as Bill Belichick does, which is amazing to me. Like, I don't even blame Patricia. I feel like I got midway through the season. Like, obviously, when you're watching the games, you get aggravated with the play calling, et cetera. Like some of the stuff, all the screen passes, like, come on, (laughs) let's do something else here. But at the same time, you think to yourself, well, he shouldn't be in this position anyway. So it's tough to get mad at Patricia individually rather than putting it on Bill, who ultimately made that decision, which brings me to the offensive coordinator situation going forward. So obviously all the links to Bill O'Brien because of the connection and the two-year contract is up with Alabama. But I'm starting to wonder about this sack. And I know they really want him. It feels like all the reporting is trending in that direction. But if you're Bill O'Brien, like now do you start to look at some of these other teams and say, well, you know, the Chargers, their job's opening up in terms of their OC. They got this Justin Herbert guy. Maybe that's a fast track to get a head coaching job again, because ultimately it feels like that's what Bill O'Brien would want is to use this as another stepping stone to be a head coach again But it feels like the Patriots really want Bill O'Brien. Do you think Bill O'Brien is going to have the same feeling towards the Patriots to want to come back here, especially considering what we saw last year from this offense? And maybe he could
1: argue, hey, if I just get back to where he was as a rookie, I could get a job. Yeah, I I mean, I think according to all the reporting out there, there is mutual interest. But this isn't a a Patriots or bust kind of situation for O'Brien, I I don't think. You mentioned the Chargers, uh, the Titans also need a new offensive coordinator. There's a Patriots connection there uh, with Mike Vrabel, who also worked under O'Brien in Houston. Uh, There are some other teams that have vacancies in that spot as well. And it's not a situation where uh, the Patriots are going to be able to kind of lowball Bill O'Brien and say, hey, look, this is your only opportunity. Take it or leave it. Uh, I think they're going to have to make a compelling case and a compelling offer to him uh, to get him back here, even though you do have all the history and he's a Massachusetts guy. He worked for the Patriots uh, for years before. Uh, So there's obviously the connections there, but uh, this is going to be a, a situation where uh, the ball is in o'brien's court uh, a little bit more than than i think people some people might realize cuz he is going to have or uh, there whether those other teams are interested in o'brien i don't know that but there are at least other openings around there uh, around the league rather that that he could be a candidate for so definitely not uh, his only option here this offseason yeah. So if it's not
0: Bill O'Brien from a Patriots angle here, we know Cliff Kingsbury is like off the grid. The guy, the guy, and I don't blame him. I mean, a tough couple of years there with Kyler Murray and all the stuff that that's, he's been that's going through. That's the best
1: it. report I've seen in a long time, by the way. I think it was Peter Schrager. He says, oh, yeah, I just talked to Cliff Kingsbury. Uh, One way ticket to a, uh, to Thailand. I'm not going to coach this year. I mean, that's, yes. that's life right there. That's exactly what you
0: want. I mean, I don't blame him at all. Why not? He's got all the money in the world now after coaching the Cardinals. He got that job after he got fired at Texas Tech. He was going to be like the OC at USC. Arizona's like, hey, we'll make you the head coach. Shocking that it failed. But nonetheless, like who else would be on the market there? Like Frank Reich. I mean, we know that he called plays in Indianapolis. Is that a name they would look at? Like if they can't land O'Brien, where do they go? Or do they look internally and say, hey, maybe Nick Haley's the guy. But I believe his contract's up as well, right? Like he could go elsewhere after this season. It
1: really depends on how Bill Belichick wants to handle this and how how much he wants to stick to his kind of typical MO with these kinds of hirings, because Bill Belichick has never really been someone who's gone outside of the Patriots ecosystem to hire these high level coordinators. Really the only coordinator, offensive or, or defensive, that he's hired that he did not previously work with uh, was Greg Ciano back in I believe that was 2019 it was right after Brian Flores left um and then Shiano ended up resigning two months later and never actually took the job and and was the Patriots defensive coordinator so this has been a, a situation where it's almost always been a promote from within or kind of bring back a a old friend of Bill Belichick kind of situation so if you're I think a guy like Frank Reich and there's some other offensive minds talented offensive minds that are on the market right now but it would be pretty uncharacteristic of Bill Belichick to to go and target somebody that he does not have a a prior working relationship with. Um, We'll see if that ends up being the case. He could decide, hey, I I tried to go with the uh, bring back an old buddy move this past year. Clearly didn't work out. Maybe I should move in a different direction. Um, But I think it's more likely to be someone like O'Brien. I think someone like Chad O'Shea. Uh, is probably in that mix. Uh, not sure if he'd be interested in returning, but he was the Patriots wide receivers coach for close to 10 years. Uh, he would call offensive plays during the preseason, kind of looked like that Josh McDaniels successor when he was here. Uh, he's over in Cleveland now uh, as their their pass game coordinator. So uh, I think he's a a potential option if he's interested in returning. Uh, and then you mentioned Nick Caley. Caley is by far the most likely internal option, I would say. Um, You did mention his contract is up. He does have other opportunities elsewhere. Uh, He reportedly is supposed to interview with the Jets today, I believe, for their offensive coordinator vacancy. Uh, Sounds like he wants to be an offensive coordinator and people believe he can be. Uh, So I I would imagine if he doesn't get that job in New England, he's probably gone. Uh, And I don't know whether the Patriots, uh, if Bill Belichick didn't consider him a viable option last year. Uh, I don't know whether his opinion on that would change uh, a year later, especially after uh, Kaylee's position groups, the tight ends, weren't uh, especially effective this season. Uh, so I don't I don't know what B- what Bill Belichick's internal thoughts are on that. But but if they are keeping it in house, uh, I say he would clearly be the the number one option there.
0: Yeah, it is one of the things that frustrates me about Bill is like you look across the league and so many of these other coaches like look at what Brian Dayball did like he got a bunch of guys that he didn't have previous relationships with for the most part in his coaching staff like there's no link between him and Don Martindale the defensive coordinator same thing with Sean McVay it's not like he had a link to Wade Phillips when he first got there and hired Wade Phillips So I do appreciate that about some of these other coaches is they do go outside the family tree and hopefully Bill can land Bill O'Brien because if not it looks like they're going to be in real trouble here all right so Let's say the hypothetical is they do get Bill O'Brien. They accomplish that goal. What happens with Patricia now? Does he go back to sort of that like front office role he had where he's signing the contracts? Is he a consultant? I mean, feels like he got enough brain power defensively on the staff. Like, what does he
1: do? Yeah, I think so. Uh, Especially with Gerard Mayo seemingly sticking around uh, New England. Uh, I know he was there was a lot of questions about whether he would leave this offseason, but he's already turned down. Defensive coordinator and head coach opportunities elsewhere. So it does seem like the Patriots will be able to keep him around. If he'd left, maybe you'd say Patricia could move back over to the defensive side, maybe do some kind of coordinator share with Steve Belichick. But uh, it doesn't seem likely uh, for that to happen at this point. I I think it's most likely he just goes back to the role that he was in in 2021, which was kind of that pseudo Ernie Adams, uh, do some contract stuff, do some research stuff, kind of be Bill Belichick's right-hand man and kind of have his hands in a lot of different pots around the organization. Um, I There's a chance that he could still have some sort of role on the coaching staff, even if it's an unofficial one. Uh, I know Scott Zolak mentioned on the radio yesterday that there's a chance he could still kind of help out with the offensive line uh, in an unofficial capacity while doing some of that advisory, uh, some of those advisory type things. Bill Belichick clearly likes Matt Patricia. He clearly wants to keep him around. Uh, At this point, I would be kind of surprised if either he or Joe Judge is outright fired this offseason. It does seem like uh, it's more likely that both of them will just be reassigned and stay with the team in different roles. Uh, That does raise some questions, especially with how the relationship between Patricia and Mac Jones was such a uh, kind of prevailing storyline this season uh, with all of Mac Jones seeming frustration uh, about patricia's play calls and whatnot having those two still in the building and interacting maybe that is could potentially cause some some trouble down the line but yeah if i would have to make a prediction i would say he's basically ernie adams 2.0 and doing essentially whatever bill belichick tells him to do all right so you mentioned mac there and
0: That was something that aggravated me this season, like all the outbursts on the field. And I would assume that that didn't go well with Bill Belichick and company, that he continued to do that throughout the season. Obviously, we know the numbers were not what they were a season ago. And you can attribute a lot of that to, like we were talking about earlier, Matt Patricia, the play calling, etc. So how committed do you think the Patriots are to Mac long term? Do you think there's no question that he's their guy going forward that they believe in him?
1: You can't really say that just because... Bill Belichick has refused to say that uh, it, it's, been a, it's been really surprising seeing how different his comments on Mac were both during the season and in his end of season press conference last week from what they were during the summer. Uh, if you remember, Belichick was talking in these reverent terms about Mac Jones last summer during training camp, said he had made remarkable strides and remarkable improvements in every area, really raving him and pumping him up. Uh, and then coming back from that injury, it's, yeah, we don't know if Mac's our quarterback. Yep. No, we're just taking it day by day. We're going to figure it out as we go. And then even after the season, there's a pretty simple question. Do you expect Mac Jones to be your starting quarterback barring injury uh, in week one in 2023? And he said, Mac has the ability to play quarterback in this league. Uh, and that was about as uh, as glowing of praise as he was willing to give at that point. So. I think Mac Jones performed well enough this year for him to at least be the Patriots quarterback next season. I think you can, I mean, he wasn't blameless for his struggles this year. He definitely, I think let his emotions get the best of him a little bit too much, especially down the stretch. But I think that was a much larger portion of the blame can be placed on the coaching staff and on the offensive line. And on some of those uh, factors that were out of his control Uh, which was one of the big issues with this Patriots season. You basically came out of this year saying, I don't know anything more about Mac Jones than I did after the Bills playoff game last year. And and this year too is supposed to be that really important development and evaluation year for for a young quarterback and the Patriots essentially wasted it. So uh, I don't know. I would be surprised if they moved on from Mac Jones or brought in some other expected starter this offseason. I think it still should be Mac Jones. And I honestly think this team and this offense aren't that far away from at least returning to the, what they were in 2021. I think if you bring in somebody like Bill O'Brien, who knows what he's doing from a play calling and quarterback coaching perspective, uh, you get a couple offensive tackles. That was a real issue for them. Maybe you go out and get a a premier wide receiver. That would obviously help. Who knows if that'll be possible, Uh, but even just getting a new coach uh, or a new offensive leader there uh, and fixing that offensive tackle issue I think this can easily be a average to slightly above average offense. And with the way the Patriots defense has performed, that's really all you need to be. Um, so uh, I don't think they're that far away. And I think they should give Mac Jones another year. But Bill Belichick's refusal to, uh, to really acknowledge that has, has forced these, these questions to, to be ongoing. There's really no answer until Bill Belichick comes out and says, oh, yeah, Mac's our quarterback.
0: Yeah, and the thing is, there's really not an avenue to get a better quarterback right now. Like, you're not going to draft one at 14. Like, there's going to be the three quarterbacks that go before that in terms of where the draft's at. Derek Carr, I would not want that guy. Brady's not coming back. I don't understand why he would want to come back here based on the weapons that aren't here at this particular point in time. And I don't see them getting in the Lamar thing just because there's going to be— if he actually is gone from Baltimore, there's going to be so many teams that are involved there. But you mentioned the receiver thing. So you had an article up today about the cap space that the Patriots are going to have— spot track has it at fifth over the cap seventh and i was looking at deandre hopkins because that video surfaced of bill talking to him before the game saying hey you're going to lead the league in receiving even though he only played in like nine games but the cap at 30.7 26.2 and 2024 20, when he's 32 just under 80 yards a game last year and remember this is like most of that is without kyler murray he's playing with like the trace mcsorleys and the colt mccoy's of the world and I look across you got a little the league. David
1: Blau in there, too. Yeah, yeah. David
0: Blau. David. <laughs> Good call, David Blau. But you see all these teams across the league, what these top-tier receivers have done for these quarterbacks, the Tua's, the Jalen Hurts' of the world. Do you think the Patriots will actually get into the sweepstakes for DeAndre Hopkins, especially now with the uh, hiring of Monty Awesomeforth there, the connection with the Patriots? Like, is this a something that maybe Bill changes his
1: thinking on? Yeah, I think Josh Allen's a great example there, too. Uh, I think yeah. adding Stefan Diggs a couple of years ago really helped kind of unlock his game. Uh, I think it's something they should do, uh, and I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, usually when Bill Belichick goes this far above in his praise for someone, he's actually legitimately interested. Uh, obviously, Bill Belichick praises everyone. He's never going to come out and say, oh, no, this guy stinks. But you can usually tell if if you listen to enough Bill Belichick press conferences when there's that extra level there. Uh, And I think it's pretty clear that that extra level is there with DeAndre Hopkins. And I think that that's something that's that's lacked from the Patriots offense, certainly in the last couple of years. And if you look around the league, as you were mentioning, almost every one of the NFL's elite premier teams has at least one of those wide receivers or tight ends in the case of someone like Travis Kelsey or, or Mark Andrews that threatens defenses, that defenses have to game plan Around the Patriots haven't had somebody like that. And I'm a big Jacoby Myers fan. I think he's a good player, but he's not that kind of game-changing number one type guy like a DeAndre Hopkins is. And DeAndre Hopkins is is obviously past his prime. But when if you look at his numbers this season, when he came back from that suspension, basically from the time he came back until Kyler Murray got hurt, he I believe was leading the NFL in receptions. If he wasn't leading, he was right up there near the top. So he is still a, a very productive player. Uh, and you obviously you mentioned the high cap hits, but if he's traded, then Arizona will have to eat some of that money. I believe it's only a, I think it's a nineteen million dollar cap hit mm. next season if the Patriots acquire him, which still is obviously a lot of money. But with the production that he can bring to the Patriots' offense and what he could potentially do for Mac Jones, I don't know. I think that that's definitely something the Patriots should pursue this offseason. Uh, especially when you look at the available free agents, there's really nobody um from, from a wide receiver perspective. It's Jacoby Myers, it's Juju Smith Schuster, it's uh, Darius Slayton, Alan Lazard. It's a lot of kind of mid-tier type guys because so many of those 2019 draft picks have already uh, signed contract extensions. So uh, I think that should be a I don't know if I would call it a a full on priority, but I think that should be near the near the top of the Patriots uh offseason to-do list is trying to get somebody uh, of of Hopkins caliber. Uh, and there aren't too many of them available this offseason.
0: Yeah, I'm with you. I would love it if they just went out there and made that splash. Get DeAndre Hopkins. Stop worrying about who's going to be the number one weapon. You have an established guy that can be at the top of the pecking order. And it helped Mac, too. I mean, help Mac with his production going forward as well. So on the offensive line, like, obviously, massive issues at tackle. Isaiah Wynn was bad when he played. And, of course, the contract's up. And then he got hurt at the end. Trent Brown was pretty much a penalty machine this season. You look out there, the Mike McGlinchys, the Orlando Browns of the world, those guys are going to get really paid. Do you think they're more likely to address tackle in the draft or via free agency?
1: I think they should do both, uh, honestly. If you look at their their tackle setup right now, it's essentially completely empty. They have Trent Brown under contract for one more season. If they don't want him back, they can cut him relatively easily with only about a million dollars in dead money. So I wouldn't say even he's a guarantee to be back next year. Uh, but it's him and it's Andrew Stuber, a seventh round draft pick who didn't play at all as a rookie. Everybody else is headed to free agency. So I think you could see a full scale makeover of this position group. But uh, I think they certainly should uh, address it high in the draft. That would be uh, my uh, if, if I'm running the Patriots front office, I'm going tackle in the first round, uh, even if they do go out and get some veteran to to fill that spot. Uh, they just haven't planned well for the future at that position at all. Um but you also need someone probably to step in there and play right away. So uh, if I'm the Patriots, I'm probably going high level free agent tackle, maybe not quite up at the Orlando Brown level, because that is going to cost a lot of money as as you were right. saying, but a a proven starter, a solid swing type guy in free agency and a high draft pick. I just think the offensive tackle issues were were so prevalent and so kind of devastating for the Patriots this season. Uh, their starters didn't play well and they didn't have any depth. Uh, the decision to move Isaiah Wynn and Trent Brown to flip-flop them from from left to right and right to left didn't make a ton of sense <laughs> at the time and really didn't work out at all. Isaiah Wynn was was basically a disaster this entire season. Uh, and then the Patriots didn't have enough quality depth behind those guys to, to step in when Wynn got hurt. So uh, I think that's from a roster perspective, that is clearly in my mind, the number one need this offseason. They got to get better at offensive tackle and they can't go into next season in the same kind of shape there that they were uh, back uh, back in September. All right, Zach. So we had no Patriots
0: in the postseason. So last night, Monday night, I'm getting ready for Tom Brady. I'm like, all right, at least we get Brady. We'll watch Tom. They're coming down the field. They're down by a touchdown after they kick or miss like a million field goals. Uh, PATs in that game, nonetheless. But So I thought, okay, Brady's going to come down, tie it up. He throws that interception in the red zone, like right after they put the graphic up on ESPN, like he hasn't thrown a red zone interception since he came to Tampa. He throws the interception. And the impression I got after that game is I kind of just felt bad for Tom. Like it felt hopeless. And I never really feel that way watching Tom Brady in any game. And it felt like you had that a lot this season. So I look at it like two years ago, he won the Super Bowl. Last year, he could have been the MVP and he almost brought them back in that game against the Rams. So like either one of those years, I could have seen him leaving because he kind of goes out. Even last year, he would have gone out on top. He had just previously won a Super Bowl. He was great in that season. But now after the down year, they had the most losses he's ever had as an NFL quarterback. I just don't think he's going to retire. Is that the feeling you have? Or do you think that there is a chance he actually says, you know what? I think I'm done.
1: Uh, I think he's going to be back next year. There's obviously a chance uh, because he hasn't announced uh, any uh, his intentions either way. But Uh, I'm with you. I can't see him going out the the way that he did uh, just because the Bucs were such a mess this season. Their their offense was bad. Their offensive line was bad. Their coaching was very bad. Uh, I think Tom Brady clearly doesn't uh, have his kind of 100 mile an hour fastball anymore, but I think he was better than the team around him was this season. And I think he probably feels that way. Uh, I would imagine he looks at himself and says, hey, I've still got a little bit left in the tank. I want to find a team that kind of has the talent around me and the coaching around me uh, to give it one last run and and not go out just kind of with this mediocre season for a a bad team and a terrible division. Um, So, yeah, I I would. And also, too, I feel like if there was a chance that this was Tom Brady's last game, we would have heard some of the the pregame rumblings. Uh, I feel like there really wasn't anything like that. Uh, It would have been like, oh, Jay Glazer reports an hour before the game that like, no, no, nothing for sure. But this might be Tom Brady's last game. And it seemed like a foregone conclusion that he's going to come back and play for uh, the Raiders or the Titans or the Dolphins or 49ers or somebody next year. Uh, but yeah, I would be pretty surprised if he decides in the coming weeks that that this was this was it for him. I think he's got one year left in him.
0: Yeah. And he kind of said goodbye to the Tampa Bay med- media people, right? Mm-hmm. He didn't really say goodbye to the game. He was saying bye to the media people, which makes me think he is going to play next year and it's going to be somewhere else. It's not going to be in Tampa Bay. So Zach, my power rankings are kind of like, I hope it's the Raiders because of Josh McDaniels, that connection. You get the weapons there. But one of the other teams I was thinking about is, man, the Jets need a quarterback. And that's a pretty good roster. It's in New York. You know, and I get they technically play in New Jersey, but you get my point. Those are the two teams that I think would be the most likely. I don't see the Niners thing. Like, Purdy's pretty good. I mean, I I don't know why you'd move on from that guy unless he really plays poorly down the stretch. But where are you at? Where do you think is the most likely destination for Tom or the best fit,
1: wherever you want to go? Uh, I think the Raiders, just given the uh, the Josh McDaniels connection, the Patriots connection, there they obviously worked together for what, 16 seasons. I think they're they're longtime friends. They obviously had a ton of success in those Patriots offenses together, uh, and the Raiders clearly have a need at quarterback because they're going to either cut or trade Derek Carr within the next couple of weeks. So uh, I think that makes the most sense. Uh, there is the, the question of whether Tom Brady would want to live in Las Vegas and move across the country uh, away from his kids and and all that stuff. Uh, so that's definitely a factor that uh, I'm sure he and the other teams will have to consider. But I just think it makes, makes the most sense to, to kind of reunite those two uh, and close out Brady's career there. The Jets is a fascinating possibility. Uh, I mean, from a, a content perspective, I would love it. I think it would be <laughs> fantastic to have Tom Brady join one of the Patriots' most hated rivals and have to play his old team twice this season. Uh, and I agree with you that the, the Jets are a talented team. And if they had a uh, even a half-decent quarterback this season, they're probably in the playoffs. They're probably a 10 or 11-win team. Uh, I like Robert Sala. I like a lot of the, uh, the players on that roster. I don't know if Tom Brady would do that. I don't know if he has any kind of, uh, I don't know, <laughs> Patriot, there's, if there's any kind of Patriots connection left in that mind that would say, "Ah, oh, man, I don't want to play for the Jets. But I mean, it's a pretty appealing package. Otherwise, you get to live in New York City, as you mentioned, you, you have the roster, you have the coaching staff. I don't know. I, I think the Raiders are, are the most likely, but the Jets are a very, very interesting wild card. Yeah, Kraft and Belichick would be thrilled if he went to the New York <laughs> Jets. I mean, that would be entertaining.
0: One thing is this, Zach, and that's Zach Cox from Nesson. Really appreciate the time, And One thing is good for you is like, okay, so the season was not great, but you're going to have a very entertaining offseason either way covering this team because they get so many moves to make, the offensive coordinator, and you get the Brady thing. Like, I mean, it's going to be a fascinating offseason for you covering this team and covering Brady, I guess, too.
1: It always is. I mean, it was uh, it was fascinating covering this team when they were – playing in or winning the Super Bowl every year. And now the kind of fall from grace is just just as interesting in a lot of ways and very interested to see how the Patriots handle these next couple of months. Because as I was saying earlier, I don't think they're that far away as disappointing as the season was. I think if they make a couple of the proper moves and a couple of the proper adjustments, they can easily be in an 11-win team and back in the playoffs next year. I, I wouldn't pick them to win the Super Bowl next year but I do think they can be very much back in that mix if they just make one or two uh, one or two adjustments that they didn't make last offseason.
0: All right that is Zach Cox from Ness and Zach thank you so much for the time I really appreciate it great stuff really enjoyed it my friend. Absolutely thanks for having me. All right coming up next I get some leftover thoughts on the C's I do want to get into one note with the Bruins and one note on the Sox as well. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. All right, great stuff from Zach Cox and Essen. Really appreciate talking with him. That was a lot of fun getting into the Brady stuff. It's going to be a crazy offseason for the Patriots. I mean, that's the one thing we can say about this team. It has not been great the past couple of years, but it has been very entertaining. All right, so I do have some leftover Celtics thoughts, and I want to start with Malcolm Brogdon. So we did a lot of Tatum earlier, obviously, but on Brogdon, during the seven game winning streak for the Celtics, okay, he's playing 25.7 minutes per game, he's averaging 18.7 points per game. If you look at From December, the start of December through January 3rd, 14 games for Brogdon, the Celtics went six and eight during that stretch, played around the same amount of minutes, 24.2 compared to 25.7, but he only averaged 11.5 points per game compared to 18.7 that he's averaging over the seven game winning streak. Okay, so the biggest difference is Brogdon during the seven game winning streak is 46 of 83, which is 55.4%. He was 54 of 129, 41.9% from December through January 3rd. And then you look at the three point percentage over the past seven games during the winning streak. He's 21 of 37. That's 56.8%. He was 18 of 55. That's 32.7% during that stretch from December to January 3rd. So that's the difference. So everybody was slumping, but Brogdon is just so important to this team because even though everybody else was slumping, Brogdon. Outside of Tatum and Jalen Brown, he's the only other guy that can self-create, right? Like, Smart can create some stuff for other people, and he can do a little bit of stuff in the post, but you don't want to be saying, hey, Marcus, here's the ball, go to work, right? I mean, we've seen that movie before. With Brogdon, that's why you brought him in. Hey, Tatum doesn't have it going, or Brown doesn't have it going, hey, Malcolm, here's the ball, you go to work, right? So that was the big difference, right? From my perspective, now, Tatum was not playing great in terms of his shooting either. I'm not saying this is all Brogdon's fault. But that third guy, you didn't have that third element to the offense when Brogdon was struggling during that stretch as well. And so here's what we're seeing with Brogdon. He admitted on multiple occasions, he's not the guy anymore. And it does really feel like he's taken to that role, right? Where he's the third option when he's on the court. Well, I mean, a lot of the times he came to the second option, right? He usually plays with Brown or Tatum. Now during the stretch without Brown, he's becoming the first option a lot. And we saw the other night where he had 30 points, right? But think about this. So Part of what's happening is he's not getting great defenders on him, right? And that's not meant to be an indictment on his opponents. It's just the fact that the defense, the primary defender on the wing is covering Tatum or Brown when he's on the court. So if you look at his isolation numbers this season, he's in the 83rd percentile. Well, last year when he was the guy in Indiana, he was in the 39th percentile in isolation. So he's averaging this year 1.13 points per possession in ISO. Last year, he's at 0.83. His effective field goal percentage, which accounts for threes being more than twos, 57.4%, okay, in isolation. You know what that number was last year? 42.6%. Even if you want to just go the basic field goal percentage, he was at 51.9% last year, or this year he's at 51.9%. Last year he's at 41.2%. So all those numbers are way up across the board. So that's a direct result of having weaker defenders on him. And the other thing that I've noticed, and that's because of Jalen and Tatum, they're going after those guys. They're not game planning for Malcolm Brogdon. So he's really benefited from that. And the other thing that I've noticed that sticks out to me, and it stuck out to me in that game against Brooklyn, he's really good against switching defenses, right? Like in that Brooklyn game, he goes seven of 13 from the field and Brooklyn, if you notice in that game, they're switching everything. And one of the things that happens, right, is he doesn't slow down, right? So When these guys are switching defensively, Brogdon just keeps going. So he's almost self-creating this advantage when these teams are switching. He doesn't slow down whatsoever, which is huge for the postseason, right? Because what we're going to see from some of these teams when you get into the playoffs is switching schemes. And Malcolm Brogdon is the guy that can expose that because, (laughs) I mean, it's crazy. The guy just keeps going. He just goes hard. He gets to the basket, etc. So that's something that's jumped out to me in this recent stretch here is, and i Looked at the isolation numbers just to see what they were because I feel like nobody stays in front of this guy right now. And a lot of it has to do with, yes, he's facing weaker defenders, but that's part of the reason he's on the Celtics. You need another guy. And then secondarily, the switching scheme, he's going to be really good against that. All right. One note on Jalen, who's missed the last three games, as we all know. Now, I need to preface this by saying this is not meant to be a shot at Jalen, okay? Let me say that again. I'm not taking a shot at Jalen Brown, okay? I love Jalen Brown. You've heard me praise his, shot-making the season, all that. But one interesting number sticks out to me about Jalen. The Celtics actually have a better offensive rating and net rating with him off the court than on it. So with Jalen off the court, 7.99 net rating compared to 546 with him on. That just means points per 100 possessions. The Celtics are outscoring teams by 7.99 without him on the floor, 5.46 with him on the floor. The offense, elite with Jalen, 118.11, but off 120.4. So they're both really good. But my point being this, so last year, one of the things we're always trying to figure out is, hey, how do the Celtics survive the non-Tatum minutes, right? And I gave you those numbers earlier in terms of how much better the Celtics are with Tatum on the floor than off the floor. He drives good offense. It's a 10-point dip, right? So I was just wondering why this team is still so good offensively without their second-best player on the court, right? Like, you think there would be a little bit of a drop-off, right? And I think the conclusion I've drawn is it's just the passing that is on the floor for the Celtics when Jalen is off the floor. Again, this is not a shot at Jalen Brown. It's just It's They're able to have this elite-level offense because the ball moves so quickly. Derek White is a very quick decision-maker. Al Horford for a big man, great passer. Smart, phenomenal passer. Tatum has improved as a passer, as I was outlying earlier. And Rob is a phenomenal passer for a big man. So along with the offensive rating, being better with Jalen off the court, I thought the assists, they have to be better too, right? Because the ball's moving more quickly. If you just watch a game without Jalen, you can tell the ball is moving more quickly. It doesn't really stop. So the numbers do tell you that. The Celtics with Jalen off the court, the assist percentage is 66.1%. So to put that into context, that would rank second in the NBA this year behind only the Golden State Warriors. The Warriors are the only team north of 66% of the season. That's it. So the Celtics would rank second without Jalen on the court in terms of their assist percentage. With Jalen on the court, it's still good, 62.5%, which would rank eighth in the league. So still good, but Jalen off the court, the ball is moving sort of like the Golden State Warriors, right? So the whole point of this exercise was just trying to see why this is happening. It isn't to say anything negative about Jalen, but having these quick decision makers on the court is what makes this team special when Jalen is sitting out like in this case because of an injury, but when he's off the court during a game. So in the postseason, a lot of this stuff is taken away, right? Even for these great Warriors teams. Remember when they really had trouble, even when they had Durant against the Houston Rockets years ago, that team switched everything. They took away their pretty game and you got to have shot makers, right? You got to have the Durants of the world. And that's where Jalen comes in, where Jalen can just make tough shots. We saw that. We've seen it all season long. We saw it in the postseason last year, but for the regular season, you need this type of ball movement when your second best player is off the court. Like this is really huge for the Celtics that they can sustain this level of offense with Jalen off the court. And it's a credit to the way that they're moving the basketball and a credit to Brad bringing guys that are quick decision makers. And by the way, speaking of the passing, did you see that pass that Robert Williams made to Jason Tatum? Yeah, full court bounce pass on the break. Just phenomenal. But anyway, all right. So the Bruins, they win that game on Monday against the Flyers 6-0. You did get that Hut Mike moment, which is hilarious from Nick Felino, where he said, so you're telling me I should just go fucking pound his face in <laughs> when it was getting a little bit chippy there in the third when you had the fight? But anyway, you had David Krejci playing in his 1000th game. So congratulations to him. And he was great in it. He had three assists. And that check line now with Zaka, who we talked about on Sunday after he got the extension, and of course with Pasta. It's been great for this team. They were awesome yesterday. The first Zaka goal was a fucking bomb. I mean, great feed from Krejci, but a bomb from Zaka. And then he gets two goals. Pasternak scores twice as well. The first pasta goal, by the way, was on five on five. The second on the power play. So if you look at that check line, 4.21 goals per 60 minutes, 13th among forward lines. It's actually better than the DeBrus, Bergeron, Marchand line on five on five in terms of the goals per 60. Now, the Bergeron, Marchand... DeBrus' line has been better defensively, but you get the point. But Krejci back and adding Zaka has completely elevated this team, right? I mean, you just look at those two moves because what that does is it allows Coyle to play third line center, and then you can drop Taylor Hall down to the third line because you don't need him on the second line because of the presence of Zaka up there, of course, with Pasternak and with David Krejci as well. But how about this now with Pasta? We talk about his chances at the Hart Trophy. I was talking to Lam McHugh about that last week. Like It's going to be really difficult to chase down Connor McDavid. How about this? He's now up to 22 even strength goals. That's third in the NHL. McDavid is six with 20. Now, here's the other thing about Pasta. He's a plus 24 on the season, which is third among non-defensemen. McDavid's at plus three. So plus 24, plus three. So Pasternak's case has to be the team's success and him keeping at least in the top five in the statistical categories. But nonetheless, I mean, McDavid right now, 83 points compared to Pasta, who's at sixty two, which is tied for third. Now, Pasta's at 35 goals, two behind McDavid at 37. But if the Bruins continue to roll this way, there is going to be a case that Pasta has. Now, McDavid's already won two. You're going to have to rip it out of his hands, but there will be that type of case. All right. Now, I did want to mention one Red Sox note. Connor Seabold, who was DFA'd last week, he's been traded to the Rockies for a player to be named later. Okay. He was atrocious last year. 98 batters faced in 2022. 35 hits. That's a 402 average. 235 whip, 1129 ERA. He was barreled up seven times, 10.3%. Only one qualified starter last year was north of 10.3% in terms of the barrel rate. He was at 10.3% last season. The fastball was sitting at 92.1 miles an hour. You thought it'd be a little bit better than it was two years ago because another year removed from the surgery, but he didn't have an overpowering fastball. And the thing that stuck out to me, he had eight walks as well. He was really scared in that start against the Toronto Blue Jays, right? Where he was afraid to attack people. He did not have confidence in his stuff whatsoever. So it was time to move on from Seabold. He had no place in the organization anymore. But one thing, and I know you're going to be surprised that I'm going to do this, I will defend Haim Bloom when it comes to this. Like the people criticizing Haim Bloom for this move, it makes no sense for to me. You got Seabold, you took a chance at a guy that had a really good changeup. Okay, it didn't work out here, but you also got Pavetta in that deal. And the guys that went out were Brandon Workman and Heath Embry. So Pavetta has thrown over 334 innings, 334.2. So two thirds innings since 2021. That is the most on the Red Sox during that stretch. So over the past two seasons, no starter has thrown more innings than Nick Pavetta for this team. Okay. So essentially you got that guy, even if he's a bottom of the rotation guy, ideally like fourth or fifth in your rotation, you got him for Workman and Embry. Okay. Workman didn't pitch in the bigs last year. He went to Philly, by the way, the year you traded him, 13 innings. He gave up 10 earned. Embry, the year you traded him to Philly, 13 earned, seven bombs in nine and a third. So both those guys were awful the year they were traded. The Phillies made that trade that year because they thought they were going to make a run into the postseason. They didn't even make it to the postseason. And you got a starter in your rotation. So yeah, it sucks that Seaball didn't work out. But I would do that again. I would take that chance again. Okay, maybe this kid's going to work out and you get Nick Pavetta in the deal. So anybody that criticizes him for that makes no sense to me whatsoever. All right, as always, make sure to get your voicemails in 617-396-7172, 617-396-7172. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Srudy for producing this podcast and we'll chat in a couple of days.